Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, I hope you had a wonderful weekend. It is Monday, December 12th. And uh, if I hope you are um, almost finished with your holiday shopping. If you plan to do your shopping online and get your stuff mailed to you, <laughs> time is wasting. Uh, time is definitely a wasting. You know, basically, you got a couple of weeks here. And uh, if there's not enough time to get it delivered, you know what that means. That means you actually have to get in your car and go to a store. Oh! The old-fashioned way of shopping. Anyway, uh, I am so glad you are here, and we will be here together all this week. We're um, we're going to be covering some local stuff, some national stuff, and some international stuff today. In the 4 o'clock hour, we're going to have uh, Professor Joel Ostro back, and we are going to be talking about the updates of what's going on with Russia and Ukraine you know, the G7, the um, the leaders of the world's biggest powers met and um, they um, included um, Vladimir Zelensky, speaking of Ukraine. Ukraine's president joined them, at least virtually. And here's what the G7, you know, the the, the biggest powers on earth said that in the face of Russia's illegal, unjustifiable, and unprovoked war of aggression against Ukraine, we stood more united than ever, together with Ukraine and in unwavering commitment to our shared values, the rules-based multilateral order, and international cooperation. We reaffirm our unwavering support for and solidarity with Ukraine, in the face of ongoing Russian war. And it claims here in this statement they all released that they're going to be with Ukraine for as long as it takes. They also condemned Russia for continuing inhumane and brutal attacks targeting critical infrastructure, in particular energy and water facilities. That seems to be the new plan for Russia. Again, Russia is hoping that if they can make as many people as possible, as miserable as possible over the winter, that somehow either Ukraine's will will waver or support for Ukraine from the rest of the world will waver, and that that might give them the opportunity they need. We will talk in much greater detail about all this with uh, Professor Joel Ostro. Um. I, you know, I get a lot of congressional notices when, you know, Brad Schneider or Jan Schakowsky or Mike Quigley or any of those people, they, you know, either make a statement about something or propose a bill. They'll send out uh, news notices. And so, I you know, I glance at them most of the time. It's not exactly something that we're going to spend a lot of time on. <clears throat> but this one caught my eye. One of the things we've gotten used to during the pandemic is telehealth being able to not have to go to the doctor's office, being able to do a phone call or a Zoom or a FaceTime with your doctor 
and chat with them and talk about your symptoms. You know, that technology existed before the pandemic. There was nothing. FaceTime's been around for a long time. What would what would prevent your doctor from meeting with you via FaceTime? Saves them time, saves you time. Well, what's the reason we didn't do it before is because insurance agencies wouldn't pay for it. Their attitude was that if you're sick, you should go see the doctor in person, and that's what they would pay for. Um, but seeing the doctor in in some sort of electronic means was something they were not going to reimburse. You could try to do it if your doctor would agree, but you'd be paying for the whole visit out of pocket. And when COVID hit, the members of Congress passed a special bill that said, hey, insurance companies, you know, you got to reimburse for this. You've got to reimburse, reimburse for a telehealth visit, just like you would for an office visit. Because people are sick, and if more people go into the office, more people are just going to get sicker. And so that was instituted. I didn't realize, though, that it wasn't a permanent change. It is set to expire this December. And then things would go back to the way they were before, which is basically whatever kind of policy you have. And most policies, as as Brad Schneider put out in his notice, um, most of the time you had to meet a certain financial payment level before your health plan would cover telehealth. And uh, so now Brad Schneider and a number of other Congress people want to get uh, the, the ability of people to get telehealth appointments extended, <laughs> which is great, you know, because uh, I don't want to see this stuff at expire at the end of the month. I don't want to have to go through a bunch of red tape or make sure I've already, you know, expensed up to my deductible and beyond before any kind of telehealth benefit kicks in. You know, we are still with COVID. We are now experiencing a bad flu season. We are now experiencing a much worse than normal respiratory illness season. If there was ever a time for telehealth, we have the technology. I, I, you know, was it that insurance companies were afraid that if they made doctor's appointments too easy, people would schedule too many of them? I mean, honestly, think about it. What else would be their reasoning for not paying for a telehealth visit the way you would pay for an in-person visit? Because if it's too easy... People might go to the doctor more often, and then they would have to pay more bills. Come on. A lot of us are still working remotely. And I've got to tell you, the few times when I do have to go to the doctor, into the office for some reason, <laughs> I, when I get to the waiting room, it's like I look around and I try to assess how sick the people in the waiting room are. You know, where's the least sick corner of the room? Is there a corner of the room that's completely unoccupied? You know, 
who seems to be breathing well. I mean, you sort of feel like just being there in the waiting room, you're taking your life in your hands. And God forbid somebody's in one part of the room coughing. And God forbid it's you. And then everybody else looks at you like, what are you, why? What are you doing here? (laughs) Get out. So thank you to Brad Schneider. There's a whole list of uh, Congress people who've signed on to this. If it, um, if the letter that they've written, they wrote the letter to both Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy, kind of hedging their bets here. Uh, but if they don't get some action here as of December 31st, for a lot of us, the rules of being reimbursed for telehealth are going to change. And let's face it, kids, if doctors aren't going to get reimbursed for it going forward, they're going to take away that option from us as well. So um, let's hope. Let's. I'll try to keep an eye on this and see how, how it goes through. Um, but hopefully we will be able to continue to do this. It just makes so much sense for everybody involved. We are going to take a break. We Chicago has a brand new older person, somebody just named to the city council. We will talk about that and more when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Chicago has a new alder. <laughs> and, you know, not a big surprise. Not a big surprise. Annabelle um, Arbarka, Abarka has been named uh, by Mayor Lori Lightfoot as the next 12th ward older person. Why do I say it's not a big surprise? You know how we've talked on this show before, and I know um, we've talked about it with Patty Vasquez, too, about how sometimes it seems that whenever there is a, a seat to be filled, Not necessarily, you know, like a seat to be filled where everybody's going to get petitions, get signatures and run for office, but a seat where someone is retiring, like a 12th Ward Alder, George Cardenas, who is who resigned, actually, technically it was November 30th. So the seat is actually already vacant. He ran for and won a seat on the Cook County Board of Review. So who is Annabelle Abarca? Well, she is his former chief of staff. And doesn't that, I've talked to politicians about why this happens. You know, oh, we have an open seat. Is it going to be a community activist? Is it going to be somebody who's owned a small business in the community for 20 years? No, it is going to be the chief of staff or some sort of senior aide for whatever politician is leaving. And I know you can make the argument that they already know how things work politically, especially a chief of staff. Chief of staff might not be the person that the residents actually talk to when they call with a request or a complaint. That would be probably just lower-level staff. But the chief of staff would be the one that would help out with committee meetings and uh, some of the more detailed work of lawmaking. So you could argue 
they already have a leg up. They know who everybody is. They know the players. The players know them. They know how government works. And that's a valid argument. I'm not discounting that kind of institutional knowledge. (sighs) But when you appoint somebody to a vacant seat, you know, obviously they have to run for re-election next time the seat is up, but it gives them a leg up. It definitely, you know, the power of incumbency is not to be underestimated. And while I'm sure Annabella Barca is a very competent person, it just kind of, it almost, it's not nepotism, but it's some, it feels like it's political nepotism. Oh, I'm going to resign or I've been elected to higher office. Hey, here's a great idea. You know, John Smith on my staff. Man, he's great. Let's put him in the seat. Okay. I know that the mayor was presented with a whole list of people. And yet even when she was presented with that list, all the City Hall insiders said, you know, yes, she's got this list of people. But if you're going to you're putting money on this race, put your money on Annabella Barca. I don't know. It just makes the idea of it just makes me uncomfortable. And if it just happened once in a while, maybe that wouldn't be the case. But it's it happens so often that it almost makes me feel like if you're not part of the team already, you don't have a shot. And I think our government functions best when there's a lot of people who come from a lot of different areas They bring different things to the table. It's like when you're forming a corporate board for a company. If everybody went to the same school and is about the same age and is roughly the same race and has the same experience, that board might not have the knowledge it needs to make smart decisions for the company. You really do need to mix it up. And I think that way too often in Illinois and especially in Chicago, we don't do that. We want to nominate somebody we know and trust as the heir apparent to carry on our legacy. And the question is, not only carry on our legacy, but maybe, maybe kind of owe us. Not that I'm saying that the Cook County Board of Review is going to need anything from the new alderwoman. But if they did, she'd be in kind of a tough spot, wouldn't she? Annabelle, I got you this job. How could you how could you not go along with what I want? I don't know. I just think that we need a little bit more fresh outsider perspectives when it comes to government and governance. And that is my rant for the day. One um, a little bit later today at um, mm-hmm. three thirty, we're getting Doctor Stockton Mayer back. He's the infectious disease physician at the University of Illinois Health Center. I'm getting a little nervous here. We've got flu. We've got COVID. We've got RSV. There's a bad measles outbreak in Ohio, and I just heard this morning about a new one: meta pneumovirus. 
I don't know about you, but I know a lot of friends who've gotten sick just this fall, just within the last month. And it isn't always COVID. As a matter of fact, um, a lot of times it doesn't seem to be COVID. We seem to be having an extraordinarily bad fall when it comes to respiratory diseases. And I'm hoping Dr. Stockton Mayer at 3.30 can give us some insight into why this might be happening. I mean, have we, by staying indoors because of COVID, did we all, like, become weak and vulnerable? Or is this just one of those freak falls where it just seems like the bugs going around are worse than usual? I don't know, but I find it very disturbing, particularly for those of us of a certain age. By the way, I know we're going to talk about this with the, the doctor, but remember, if you're 65 or older, you are eligible for special shots. <laughs> special shots, new and improved shots. There's a super extra special flu shot for those of us in our demographic. And um, there are a number of... There's two pneumonia shots that you should have. We're going to one of the things I want to talk to Stockton Mayor about is not just flu and COVID and RSV and measles, et cetera, and so forth. But for those of us who are grownups, who are adults, not just seniors, but adults in general. What vaccinations should we be getting or what? vaccinations, should we ask our doctor to check our records and and see if we've gotten them all that we might be missing? What are the important, you know, we all know for kids at, you know, this age, you give them this, at this age, you give them that. I mean, it's like there's a schedule. We know what to give kids and when to do it. But when when you get to be an adult, it's kind of a free for all. I remember years ago, there was that a wave of a polio-like illness because there were adults who had a polio vaccine that was basically starting to wear off. Adult vaccinations. It's not something that, you know, we, we put nearly as much effort into as we do the ones for kids. I mean, frankly... I always thought, get them all, you know, get all the vaccinations when you're a kid and you're done. Huh. I was very wrong about that. Very wrong about that. And I have a feeling there are probably other things out there that Dr. Mayer can tell us about that we should be asking our doctors about. <sighs> our first guest today is uh, going to be Marge Halperin with Indivisible Chicago. She also sometimes uh, fills in here at WCPT, so I know you are very familiar with Marge. We are going to be talking about Chicago politics. Uh, again, the petition, cha- uh, the petition challenges, signature challenges are currently in the works. We will see who, if anybody, gets dropped. There are some people in Jamal Green, the young activist office, who are accusing Ricky Hendon of trying to get them to drop their challenge to Willie Wilson. Um, there, Ricky is accused and denies this. He's accused of offering a bribe to get them to walk away from their challenge. 
So it is, first we have everybody throwing their hat in the ring. That's season one. Season two is who actually gathers enough signatures to get on the ballot. Season three is when we challenge those signatures and we see just who's left after that process. I think um, Alderman Raymond Lopez, who was one of the first to enter the race and the first to drop out, I think he made a good point. You know, um, I think that the more peoples who end up on the final ballot after the petition challenges, the greater that number is, the greater the chances that we go to a runoff. And again, power of the incumbency. Ray Lopez said that the reason he threw his hat in the ring is he doesn't think Mayor Lori Lightfoot has done a good job and he does not want her to get a second term. With all the different names, he said, you know what? I see so many names on this ballot now that my concern is that she's going to make it. She's going to be one of the two people in a, in a runoff just because the power of incumbency, the amount of money she's been able to get in donations, the support she has from the business community as mayor of Chicago. We're going to talk to Marge Halpern about the candidates for mayor and how she sees this particular mayoral contest working out. Um, we do have, let's see, February 28th is the big day. Um, we'll be paying attention to the Wisconsin primary, re- Wisconsin primary for the Supreme Court the week before, and then the Chicago mayoral vote the 28th, and uh, most likely shortly thereafter, a runoff. Anyway, we'll talk to Marge about all that and more when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by the lovely and talented Marge Halperin. You've heard her filling in on WCPT. She works with Indivisible Chicago and uh, joins us now. Hello, Marge. How are you? Hi, Joan. I'm lovely. Thank you, apparently. (laughs) And so are you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Uh, Before we start talking about the mayor's race, though, I want to talk about um, the uh, gun legislation that Bob Morgan is trying to get through in the uh, lame duck session, either in December or in January, to get it on the books. The assault weapons ban, the high capacity magazine ban, um, the provision giving the Illinois State Police more power and authority and money to go after illegal guns crossing the border. Uh, at the end of last week, I was urging all of our listeners to fill out a witness slip in favor of this legislation. And I tweeted out the link and I even tweeted out a picture of how I filled it out. So in case you have any questions, where to where to put the check marks. And I was very disappointed in one of the newsletters I get over the weekend um, the, you can't sign. I'm not trying to get you to do a petition right now, folks, because they both they split it into two different committees. Both of them, it had to be in by either 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. this morning. But when I saw the tally over the weekend, Marge, a little over 10,000 people had registered as proponents, the in favor of banning assault weapons and high capacity magazines and some other lesser common sense ideas. Over 17,000 said that they filed witness slips opposing this. 
I don't really think of Illinois as that kind of a gun-crazy state, but I've got to say that I was surprised and saddened when I saw those numbers. So the hearings are going on today, and who knows how people are going to vote. What uh, What do you think about all this? Well, I would break that down a little bit, because uh, on the one hand, the witness slip thing, as much as I'm a proponent of witness slips, I did them myself, and we put it out through Indivisible, um, although I'm speaking my, for myself now, not on behalf of Indivisible. I want to be clear about that. But it's a little bit of a popularity contest, which I guess is what is um, rankling you. But uh, any of these polls, it's a simple poll, right? So people can activate a group or not, um, and that doesn't, it's not a ballot box. If you were to put this referendum yes. on the statewide ballot. There is um, nothing with these witness slips. It's not like when people do, I don't have much faith these days in polls, but at least when somebody does a poll, they try to um, make a representative sample. They try to do at least a little bit of a scientific balance so that they can look at their results and say, ah, this is what people think. You're right. I mean, for witness slips, it's wide open. Mm-hmm. They don't, right. They don't even, aren't even cleared for registered voter, right? They didn't ask me if I was a registered voter. Right. That wasn't no. the box I checked. You're a resident. And, and maybe you don't have to be a registered voter. I, I think any resident should have some say, but you have a lot more say if you register to vote and actually turn out to vote and those are, you know, we say that election time. The only poll that really matters is the one at the ballot box, right? Really? How, how do you suppose then that the state lawmakers see that? I think those that want to say the people back to me are going to say, look, 17,000. I'm going to mm-hmm. withhold my vote. It, you know, um, but I, I think the responsible lawmakers are going to weigh it on its merits and pay attention to the uh just tragic number of mass shootings that we're seeing and think about the validity of assault weapons in private homes. Yeah. I hope they think about that. And, you know, this didn't used to be the big controversial issue. I mean, in I think it wasn't was either nineteen ninety four or nineteen ninety six when we had a federal assault weapons ban. And, you know, unfortunately, it lasted 10 years, it expired, and it's never been renewed. And now, of course, you know, it's a whole them and us situation, Mm -hmm. as it is, it's seemingly for almost everything these days. Right, pretty much everything. Yeah, and I was just thinking today about all the things the Republicans, in particular the MAGA Republicans, support or oppose and how there's an irony in there. You know, like we saw in the election, they opposed drop boxes in early voting and they made their own voters afraid to use them. So uh-huh. what's the result? It, they they diminish their own turnout because some people need early voting because they have jobs and work and exactly. have conflicts. So they get sick on election day. So as a result, the early voting does favor Democrats because we turn out for it. They urged anti-vaxxers, you know, uh, to make fun of masks and COVID vaccines. And now uh, now there's an outbreak of measles in central Ohio 
where they're not vaccinating against measles. So, uh, and and then they favor assault weapons and who, who owns them predominantly? Like they're killing their own people. No. There was um yeah I I, I shared this with the audience before there was um I don't know some statewide race at a red in a red state out west and the 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 MAGA Republican candidate lost by um they lost by something like I don't know five to seven thousand votes and in that state in like the previous two years. Um, they'd had 10,000 COVID deaths and the political science before this election even took place, the political scientists were looking at those deaths and saying that the vast majority of them were Republicans. You know, they were the, they were the, I'm not going to get a vaccine. I'm not going to wear a mask. And they got sick and they died. And the irony was enough of them died that they probably could have gotten that guy elected if they had just survived. You're, they literally are killing their own voters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, it was a good 10, 20 years ago when we started discussing among, you know, liberal set, why are people voting against their own interests, you know? Well, they're voting against their own interests in such massive uh, ways that, yeah, it, sometimes it's actually killing people. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. divide in this country and and puzzling to think about how we bridge it. There are a lot of theories and ideas, but no one's figured it out. I'm beginning to think that it may it may not be bridgeable um, because the far, far right. You know, it's one thing, Marge, when somebody disagrees with you uh, about uh, taxation or this program or that program, but this is almost like trying to, um, I feel like it's trying to connect with a religious zealot, like a cult member, like, you know, somebody who's ready to drink the Kool-Aid. And I, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's so many people I believe are unreachable, not, you know, and I think the ones, well, you've, you've seen them, the ones who are still going to Donald Trump rallies. Um, there was a, a yeah. famous comedic reporter who worked um, on The Daily Show, Jordan Klepper, and he would go out to Trump rallies mm-hmm. and he would ask people and, and he asked these two women who showed up in their Trump T-shirts and their Trump hats. And he said, "Are you know, are you part of a cult? Oh, no, we're not part of a cult. OK, well, tell me exactly what it is about Donald Trump that you like. And the woman looked at him and said, oh, just anything that spews out of his mouth, we just love. And he and again, the reporter <laughs> looked at her and said, but you're not a cult. And she was like, no, I don't think we're a cult. And she turned to her friend. Do you think we're a cult? But, it, you know, it wasn't like I love his policy on this or I love his character or I, it just it's 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 that it was that almost religious fervor. And I don't know how yeah. you bring somebody back from that, Marge. Well, I would combine that with the fact that uh, the one thing Trump quote that I think has made the biggest impression on me is the when he was at a rally during the campaign, his first campaign, uh, where he said something. I, I don't know what he said, what comment prompted it, but it was something unbelievable, like most of what he says. And everybody cheers him, and he shakes his head and says, I love the undereducated. Oh, 
Oh my God. Or some version of that. I mean, you gotta love that or something like that. But I, you know, that was his ticket. And so how do you reach people who, who don't have the facts and don't want them, you know? Um, And I, I see it in social media all the time. Somebody, somebody, uh, I'm trying to think. I, I saw on Facebook the other day somebody they're trying to post um, what's his name Waylon the the Marine who is mm-hmm. from Russia. Yeah, um, yeah. So make sure his picture's everywhere. The guy says and puts it on Facebook. And somebody says, I can't believe uh, Biden would let would get a pothead out of prison before out of Russia before they'd let the Marine out. Like. Mm. A pothead? Really? Like, first of all, it was a post from a guy I went to high school with, so I'm pretty sure he would fit the definition of pothead, if that's still a word anyone wants to use, because I know the guy used to smoke pot. But secondly, it is a medical now. I think a lot of sports figures probably use marijuana for pain relief. I think, I don't know, you know, the, but pothead, well, here's the other thing. Paul Whalen was, Paul Whalen was in Russian custody for over two years of the Trump administration. He had yeah. two years to get Paul Whalen out of Russia because, you know, he's best friends with Putin. Putin loves him. I mean, it's just a love fest between those two. That's why, you know, he wanted to improve relations with Russia. He had two years to get Paul Whalen out of Russia. He gave Maria Butina back, got nothing for that. He freed yeah. 5,000 Taliban soldiers. He got nothing for that. And suddenly Biden's a bad guy because he only rescued one American right now. I mean, people, right. you know, his followers, they, they, they either never connected the dots before or they just don't, they don't want to hear it. Donald Trump had two years to get Paul Whalen out. Donald Trump bragged about how Putin and he were best buddies. And you know, Maria Butina, we, we try her. She's a spy. Oh, Maria, it's okay. You can go back to Russia. Oh, we're not going to ask for anything in return. You just go. Have a great flight. Get me a break. Yeah. yeah. Well, in addition, uh, John Bolton said that they did have a deal, but it, but they wanted to exchange Waylon for the merchant of death, you know, about, and, um, they refused because they wouldn't, they wouldn't let him go. But besides that, Waylon, uh, he was kicked out of the Marines in a court-martial yeah. uh, on charges of attempted larceny, dereliction of duty, making a false official statement, wrongfully using someone else's Social Security number, and 10 specific examples of floating checks. Um, and uh, and after that, there was some embezzlement charge after uh, separate from the Marines. I'm reading all this off notes. And, yeah. and actually, I, I know I was going to clip it, and post it to that guy's Facebook. I thought, he didn't want to know that. He, the facts will not be helpful. No. This is not something, I, and back to the bridging divide. But I, I will say, we have had uh, an indivisible team doing deep canvassing. And that's about listening to people, not debating you know mm-hmm. me, I'm a debater, so my first thought is, oh, here's the facts, so there. You know, that's how I react. I don't think that's productive with some, I mean, we all like 
accept the facts, but I, I don't think that's a good way to change uh, somebody's mind who's uh, a polar opposite. But but this deep canvas um, is there's psychology and other kinds of studies about really listening to people and finding the common ground and building from there, you know? Absolutely. I've talked to a number of people who uh, were running for statewide office who were knocking doors. And I, and I said to one of the people, I said, well, you know, when you knock on a door and somebody comes to the door, what do you tell them? And the person said to me, no, that's not how it works. You know, it's not right. it's not here's who I am and here's why you should vote for me. It's, you know, here's who I am. What are your concerns? What is it that you would like to know? What is it that you would like, you know, me as your state rep, state senator, representative, school board, whatever, that you would like me to do on your behalf? They said it's it's if you want to do effective door knocking, it's about listening, not talking. That's right. And I do think, and I'm a little self-deprecating, I do know how to do that. And when we do phone banking and canvassing, that is what we do. The deep canvas idea is that you go early. We started, our team was out um, in Wisconsin in April before the election. They went out every month to have conversations, you know, before their primary and everything. But but I think about one phone call that I had with a woman who um, I said, you know, I'm calling for Mandela Barnes. We hope we can come in your support, which is how we open some things. And um, on the phone, and she said, well, you know, I I usually vote Republican. I'm like, well, what issues matter to you? Well, I'm not sure yet. Well, you know, you're a woman. What do you think about abortion? Well, that's important to me. You know, we start to form a connection there. And then she says, well, but I'm in law enforcement. So, you know, we usually vote Republican. And I said, but I thought uh, law enforcement is concerned um, about the proliferation of guns on the street. You know, did you know that Senator Johnson opposes all attempts to limit guns on the street, magazines, assault rifles? You know, isn't law enforcement opposed to that? She said, well, that is an important issue on the street. You know, and she paused. In the end, she said she was thinking about it. I, You know, I have no idea how she voted or whether I really moved her, but we had a conversation about her concerns and I had some answers and I could have done better. Um, Even so, I had a quick answer for her, but a phone phone goes a little faster than on the door. But um, to successfully listen, you know, what is your experience with the song? Did you ever see him on the street? Tell me about it. You know, we could go on further uh, with it. That takes a lot of time and a lot of patience. Uh, it really, it really, do, it really family. does. But those are the kinds of conversations that will that will win people over who haven't completely lost touch with reality. Uh, Marge, uh, we have been chatting so much. I've got to get to a commercial break. Marge Halpern and I will be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT eight twenty. I'm joined by Marge Halperin. Um, <clears throat> you've heard her on WCPT. She fills in from time to time. We are talking about all of the news of the day. And uh, Marge, I'm sure it hasn't escaped your notice that we have um, um, another big election coming up. Uh, not the midterms, not Georgia, uh, but we have another big election coming up in the city of Chicago. And we have... A, an abundance 
a cornucopia of candidates who would like to be (laughs) Chicago's next mayor. Um, What do you see at this stage of the process? Yeah, it's the good news and the bad news, right? (laughs) Um, I mean, the good news is that for progressive voters, there are a lot of good candidates uh, who put their names in the ring and um, could really advance progressive the progressive agenda. Um, but the bad news is there's a lot of candidates in the same territory and uh, likely to split the vote. That's how Lori Lightfoot emerged. And uh, in our worst fears, I guess, uh, all the liberal-slash-progressive candidates would divvy up a good portion of the vote, and maybe Paul Vallis emerges uh, as the leader. Paul's done some great service to the city, um, and I, I don't want to diminish that, but he has moved himself into a far-right corner, uh, particularly as an ally of uh, the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police, and I find that um to be a major concern, and that's not the kind of leadership I want for this city. What uh, is it so, about, because I know that um, the John Catanzara reached out to him when they were negotiating and asked him to look over and weigh in on some of the budgetary proposals. And I was um, talking to Paul, and he said, I'm going to do it, but I'm not taking any pay. I don't want to be perceived as being, you know, on the payroll. He said, I'm just I'm going to do it pro bono and bring, you know, my expertise on budgets to bear, offer my insight. But it was almost kind of like he wanted to keep some separation there. You don't see that separation being very pronounced anymore. He didn't want the money trail, but how much separation is there when you uh, align yourself with one side of a labor negotiation, however he wanted to play it, he was aligned with the interests of the FOP, which I don't believe have been in the best interest of the residents of the city or of safety. I think they're protecting um, their jobs and their... Um, This is a tough thing to parse through, but I will say this, Joan. I've talked to police in my part of the city, which is the South Loop, and uh, they don't like the mayor. And they, I have had more than one say directly to me, she doesn't like us, why should we help her? In terms of, oh, the police that sit on the corner that I can see right out my window never get out of their car, they don't do anything. They don't get out. They don't talk to people. They don't, um, they don't stand up the garbage cans to get knocked over in the wind right next to their car. Like they have no uh, feeling of supporting the residents and the city overall, you know, um, and uh, have a very convoluted contract that protects their jobs uh, more than sometimes they protect the city. And a lot of good cops who do good work around the city, um, but FOP doesn't encourage them in my experience. You know, I've talked to a lot of the candidates for mayor and nobody's, I I can't recall off the top of my head, any of them 
who have said that they were real fans of David Brown and really wanted him to stay on. Um, but a, a, a surprising number of the candidates for mayor I've spoken with said that they believe that the next superintendent should come from the ranks of Chicago cops. Now, Chicago is still trying to work out the consent decree. Um, Chicago has, you know, not necessarily moved very fast on a lot of these reform issues. And my thought was, you know, I understand wanting to promote from within because you have somebody who has the name recognition and possibly the respect of the rank and file. But if you have a department that needs a lot of change, are you going to get that if you promote from within? Or, as we've seen with David Brown, is it the opposite, where you bring somebody in from the outside and they simply don't really have the support and the power to make real change? It's it's a quandary. There must be another choice. It can't be either or those two things you said, because those two things don't work. What else can we try? I mean, I, I, I want to say, first of all, that I'm not going to be your leading expert on police reform. I'm sure you've talked to Frank Chapman and others who uh, he's with, uh, you know, Carper and uh, Chicago Alliance against racist and political reform. Uh, uh, No, that can't be quite the phrase. (laughs) (laughs) Repression. Chicago Alliance against racist and political repression. Frank Chapman is an expert on police reform. I'm not. But but I will say flatly, you don't have to be an expert to know Chicago Police Department is broken to use the political vernacular, right, is broken. It's not working. How, how do we transition to some new model um, that works for people? It's, it's not protecting residents, and it's not preventing crime, and it's not interconnected uh, successfully with the broader criminal justice system. Uh, in a or the fairness and justice that we all want, you know. So there's not a measure on which is working. So what are the yeah. things we haven't tried? What are the successful things that are being tried elsewhere? Um, we're hardly at the cutting edge of police reform. <laughs> no, uh, we we are not. And I know that people are always pointing to the fact that there are so many resignations and so many retirements and so many um, jobs and positions that go unfilled that, you know, the um, the stats of how well they do their job and how many people are brought to justice are just tanking. Um, I just read a really interesting thing from the New York Times that was talking about the New York Police Department. Um, we need to take a break for news at the top of the hour. Marge Halpern and I are going to continue this discussion on the other side. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Marge Halperin joins me. We are um, pretty much solving all the problems of the city of Chicago, she and I. You know, it always amazes me, Marge, that, you know, government officials don't call me up all the time and say, well, Joan, what do you think about this? Because you have such incredible insights and well-thought-out positions I can't believe we didn't turn to you to solve this problem. But, Marge, it happens over and over again that um, I give all of this good advice and uh, nobody takes it. We were talking about the Chicago Police Department, and I just started to say that in the New York Times um, in the last few days, they did an article about the New York Police Department, too. Apparently, uh, they are experiencing the same sort of exodus that Chicago, Chicago is experiencing 
They're seeing a lot of officers leave, most of them, according to the New York Times, going to smaller communities where they make more money. Um, I mean, uh, Chicago police, though, make a pretty good salary. I don't know how it compares to New York, but it always seemed to me that our department was pretty well paid. Um, but it seems to be a problem. Some people say, oh, well, look at Chicago. Obviously, you know, it's the mayor's fault. It's David Brown's fault because all these cops are retiring or quitting. But it isn't that isn't just a Chicago phenomenon. It is um, sometimes we get right. tunnel vision and some of the problems we're having are really, you know, national problems or at least big city problems. How's that? Yes, I think that's a fair analysis. And after COVID, I I think any of the frontline workers, of which the police are certainly a part, you know, are making a mass exodus. Um, you know, we're seeing we're seeing a massive, from my perspective, and uh, I have we're seeing certainly a large exodus of doctors and medical personnel, um, but but police as well, and I think. Um, pay is part of it. One of the things that Paul Vallis has argued for is to allow police to live outside the city. I am flatly opposed to that. I believe that police and teachers and uh, anyone on the city payroll ought to live here and experience the city uh, so that they can better serve it. And I think, you know, that's one issue that I've always been torn on. I understand the argument you're making. You know, if you're going to serve the people of this city, you should be a part of the city. But I also know that, you know, um, a lot of times, especially um, for younger folks, the it's just it's cheaper a lot of times to live outside the city. And I feel for them, um, you know, it, it feels I understand the theoretical reasoning, but it feels like another burden that we're placing on people. I don't know. I really I could I could argue both sides of this and be quite content either way. But I do know that that's the argument that always makes me uncomfortable, especially when you get young teachers or officers just starting off. And um, and, you know, the fact that they could have maybe a bigger house if they were in one of the surrounding suburbs as opposed to the city. I, I feel like that is an extra commitment and sometimes an extra burden we ask of them. Don't you think, Marge? Well, I speak as the wife of a now retired school, public, Chicago public school teacher and the mother of a new public school teacher and parent of students who went through Chicago public schools uh, their entire school years. I I feel, and I used to work for CPS as well as City Hall and the Park District, as you know, I do a little tour of government duty myself. And I feel (laughs) like, you know, if you you want the benefits of the suburbs, you can also work in the suburbs. But if you want the benefits of the city and are attracted by the job and the amenities that are offered to you in in the city as an employee of the city, then I think you are obligated to live there and help make it a better place. What if, you know, all the teachers, Chicago public schools lived in the suburbs and, and, you know, just took on a job in the city, but the overall quality of schools uh, didn't impact their lives any more than nine to five or 
eight to three. Well, the quality of the schools would still impact their lives because it would impact their jobs. You know, I mean, whether or not they have enough books or enough supplies, you know, that would still be something that I think that they would lobby for and and fight for. I mean, you could extend that argument to anchor people. You know, I mean, who is supposed to be more involved in, you know, the city and what's going on? And and yet, um, you know, there are some people who are reporters and anchors who live in the city proper, but a lot more live in the suburbs. And, you know, the same argument, you're committed to Chicago or not. I don't know. I understand yeah, you know who what you you're saying, but I, on a case by case basis, I think it doesn't always work. You could take that farther. The one who used to call that out in terms of reporters in the suburbs was Harold Washington. Every now and then he said, where do you live? You know, to a Tribune reporter or a TV reporter. And they'd mumble something and they'd, they'd be called out. What's your commitment to the city? You don't live here. Um, he he would do that um, to make people uncomfortable in press conferences, and it worked. Um, yeah, I, I, I just think that uh, some key categories of employees. Now, television, newspaper reporters, radio reporters aren't paid by the city tax dollars. Police and uh, firefighters and teachers are. Um, so they work for us quite directly. And so I think that's a line I would draw in terms of uh, media for sure. Um, but I, uh, I think there's a massive conversation to be had about how to fix the police department. And it's not about tinkering at the margins. Laura Lightfoot promised some things she did not deliver on. And those who supported her uh, have been uh, immensely disappointed in how she's handled the police. I mean, we all watched on television live in the moment as people protesting police brutality were brutally beaten and then kettled downtown. You know, but, man, it's been, it's frustrating. And I say again, I'm not your expert on police reform, um, but I I am as frustrated and and upset about policing in this city as anyone else, I think. Well, you touch on a point that I'd like to go into a little bit more. Um, People make a lot of promises when they're campaigning. They have programs, they have plans, they have promises. And virtually no one does 100% of it once they're in office. But what percentage should we expect, Marge? 20%? 50%? At what point do we point a finger and say, you know, because I can remember Lori Lightfoot talking about transparency, and she was going to live stream not only city council meetings, but but committee meetings. So people, the people of the city could actually see the negotiating and the work getting done. And, you know, she also was uh, saying that she supported term limits, which apparently she no longer does. So Mm -hmm. at at what point do you say, you know, you you missed too many things? You you fell short here. What's that number? Well, you know, I think your point about transparency is probably the lead to the conversation. It's not possible to do as a candidate. You have a certain insight into government, but you don't have the whole picture. And then you get to city hall uh, or the state house or whatever you're running for, uh, school board or whatever it might be, and reality strikes. And you figure out 
what is the most pressing issue and what solutions make the most sense. But where's the transparency in saying, you know, I did say I was going to broadcast the council meetings, but it turns out that's not my choice. City council has to vote for it. I have tried to whip the vote. Here's what I've done to get it, make it happen. I have failed, but I'm still committed to it. And here's the alderman opposed, and you should call them. That would be transparent. Instead that of would be transparent. It, You're it. exactly right. That would be that would be a politician. I could say, um, you know, just okay. I said I was going to do this. I didn't get it done. Here's why. And I'm either going to get it done in my next term, or I'm not going to get it done unless this X, Y, and Z happens. That would be so refreshing, Marge. I would vote for a person like that in a heartbeat. Sure. And instead, we see Lori Lightfoot's ad once an hour that says, I'm not going to sit here and tell you I did everything right, but I'm going to tell you we did our best. You know what? You didn't. You didn't do your best. Tell me the things that you want to do better and why it didn't happen the first term. Let's have a real conversation about it. Not in the 60 second ad, but she Mm -hmm. has plenty of opportunities to tell us the reality that struck her. You know, I went into City Hall thinking I could do A, B and C, but it turned out. Uh, first of all, we had a big budget crisis I had to deal with. Secondly, we had COVID. And thirdly, when I went to the police department, this happened. Let's hear it. You know, I, I, she talks about investing in communities, and I have to throw in my uh, current pet project right now because I, I think I'm thinking about One Central, which I think you and I have talked about before, the massive development uh, on the lakefront. She talks mm-hmm. about investing in communities that need it most. And yet, uh, when the state legislature has passed $6.5 billion worth of subsidy for a private developer to extend the skyline, downtown skyline, why isn't she saying we need $6.5 billion to shore up the communities on the west and south side? She's got to invest in west-southwest, or whatever she calls her program. Um, yeah, invest She southwest. can use that money, but... Invest Southwest. I, I threw in an extra West. Yeah. So, but instead, it's like, well, you know, if the state wants to give us money for the lakefront downtown, okay. And, and and the worst part of that project that she should be screaming about is the developer, uh, Landmark uh, Development, and Bob Dunn says, this is a gateway to jobs for the South Side. A gateway to South Side jobs. We're not putting jobs in the South Side communities that need them, but we're going to make it easier for you to get on the train and go downtown into the North Side, which are thriving. It's anathema to the whole conversation about equity and development. And where's Lori Lightfoot? She puts the same guy up on a podium to talk about building a dome over Soldier Field. He puts out the drawings of what that might look like, and his entire extended skyline is drawn in the background. She's going to back that plan because if he brings the bears or maybe she's already agreed to back it instead of demanding state money where it's needed most. There's no transparency there whatsoever. Yeah, I actually thought I haven't been paying attention to that because um, I thought it was definitely on a back burner. I have 
Uh, I have, you know, for a while, it was seemed like every day I was reading about the Lincoln Yards and, you know, the 78. And 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 mm-hmm. then I got, you know, the midterms came and I haven't paid any attention to where any of that development stands right now. I kind of thought one central was dead, but I guess I guess only in my mind was it did it did it go away? <laughs> Uh, Marge, we need to well, take a break. I think they want you to think so. We'll talk about yeah. it when we get back. Okay. We'll be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Marge Halperin was just telling me, um, bringing me up to speed on the one central development, the developer there apparently wooing and winning Mayor Lori Lightfoot with the promise of somehow creating a dome older, over Soldier Field. Um, there's, there was the 78, there was Lincoln Yards. Um, I, I'm still waiting to see what kind of a debacle is created when we, I guess we're turning the Medina Temple into a temporary casino until uh, the big casino can be built over by the Chicago Tribune printing plant. That's going to be, that is going to be a parking nightmare. Uh, I just, I can't even wrap my head around the fact that that is going to be a part of of downtown, a lot of development uh, that we haven't, I haven't paid enough attention to on this uh, show, at least not recently. Um, but Marge, I don't want to let you go without circling back to uh, the race for mayor of the city of Chicago. I was kind of surprised that not that Chewy Garcia got in the race, but that he waited so long to get in the race. I mean, people were talking about, you know, yes, he is a formidable candidate, but, you know, when you wait to commit a lot of the money that could be yours and a lot of the endorsements that could be yours are already going in a different direction. What do you think of Chewy's candidacy? Uh, A few things. One is I think he's a far better candidate than he was last time. Um, His his plans are more solid. His knowledge is more extensive. He's a more uh, politically mature, uh, professionally mature candidate. He knows more um, from the experience that he's gained in Congress. And having a relationship uh, in Washington is good for the city. Um, so on that, uh, on a lot of ways, I think he's a better candidate. He talks like a better candidate. His answers are more specific and more knowledgeable. And one of the things that he said, uh, I found very interesting. He was asked, why did, why are you running without the CTU and SEIU endorsements? Why did you wait so long as to lose out on them? They've gone, of course, to Brandon Johnson, who is also a fine progressive candidate, as is Cam Buckner, who has been our eyes and ears and, and lead supporter on uh, the one central issue, by the way. Um, And what he said was that uh, he's running on policies and ideas and expects that uh, he'll make it to the runoff and that he'll receive the union support at that time. What he didn't say, that is between the lines, is that he won't be fully beholden to these union leaders. He'll get them. He'll get their support. He'll get their field operation in the final uh, runoff, but he won't get them. I mean, there's not only money, but they have a formidable field operation, both of those unions. So he's banking on being able to turn out his uh, Latinx vote and others who support him and who have supported him a long time, 
even with you know, that union field boost. One of the one of the people I was talking to about the mayor's race a few weeks ago said that they don't think it's an impairment not to get some of the big endorsements, because if you their argument was if you get a big union endorsing you, then you are sort of locked into taking whatever positions that or that that union wants the the pushing the issues that they mm-hmm. want pushed and that in a funny way you know even though you don't have access like you're saying to that great ground game that a lot of unions bring you're also not exactly what you just said hamstrung you know you're not um you're not right. required to to support certain things or not support other things that's right chicago loves its teachers um not always in a loving relationship with union leaders and union policy, uh, for example. So, yeah, I think that's true. I think he gets a little bit of distance. I think ever since, you know, Karen Lewis uh, wanted to be mayor, the CTU has had their sights on controlling the fifth floor. And I'm not sure the general public thinks that's a good idea. And so he's banking that they don't. And creating mm-hmm. just a little bit of distance. It's not unfriendliness. He's certainly supported CPU uh, for a long time and their policy. So they're not unfriendly. Um, but he's like, all right, I'll see you in a little bit, which is an interesting strategy. Were you surprised that Stacey Davis Gates um, stepped back and Brandon Johnson threw his hat in the ring? She, of course, for many years, you know, whenever I would interview somebody who didn't like her or what she was doing, they would say, oh, you know, she just wants to be mayor. And that's why she's doing this or saying this or or calling a press conference. And yet when she had the opportunity, she passed. I wonder if they did polling. I guess I think they must have. Um, But what I just said holds for her, too. I'm not sure the head of the CTU could be elected mayor. I don't mm-hmm. think that's a credential the city overall wants as much as the city supports teachers. And I personally certainly do. I told you I have teachers in my family and, you know, I'm all for teachers in Chicago. But the CTU itself and the level of political power they have and the level they want uh, does concern a lot of voters, I think. So um, Brandon Johnson, on the other hand, has government experience. He's, you know, Cook County Board and he's already mm-hmm. served. Um, and has uh, that expertise to bring. And I think he's a much stronger candidate than she is. And, of course, he has radio experience, which you and I know is always tremendously valuable in any walk of life. Right, Marge? That's right. That's right. This audience knows him. Um, I've had him when I've subbed for you. I've had him as a guest, and, of course, he's got his own own flat. Are you worried that there are too many progressives right now in the ring and that they will dilute the progressive vote? Yes, but I'm not worried that they will all remain. They're going to figure something out, I think, and figure out how to gain strength uh, by by uh, whittling down the number. But that won't happen until after some mayoral forums. Let's hear from them all. Let's meet them all. And those for whom this turns out not to be their time uh, are still strengthened by running and have gained broader uh, understanding of voters and government. And we've gained broader understanding of them. And I hope they all uh, remain in the public eye 
and in government and look to advance themselves to do more in government because I think they're all great candidates, but they but they should not all remain, and I don't think they will remain in the race uh, past, say, the end of January. Marge, it is always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for uh, sharing a good portion of your day with us today. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Always fun, Joan. And uh, I don't know why the mayor doesn't go to you for advice. You know. (laughs) Everyone, I have the solutions to so many problems. It's staggering. Um, But indeed, indeed. Yeah. Thank you, Marge. Uh, That's uh, that's it for this segment. We are going to take a break for um, news and no, not news, uh, just traffic and weather traffic with the lovely Paul Shavari. And then when we come back, we're going to be joined by Dr. Stockton Mayer. And we're going to talk about the triple demic season that we are currently living through that and more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. There is a lot going on right now. I'm starting to see reports of upticks in COVID. Uh, There is a report this morning that uh, the public health department in New York City is recommending, not requiring, but recommending that people once again start masking indoors because they are seeing their COVID numbers going up. On top of COVID, we've got the flu We've got RSV, we've got measles in Ohio, and something I just learned about this morning, metanumovirus. It seems that we are having a kind of a tough time this fall, and I thought we could use some good information. Dr. Stockton Mayer is an infectious disease physician at the University of Illinois Health Center and uh, is has become my go-to guy to, to explain things to me in a way that I can understand. Dr. Mayer, thanks so much for being here. Hey, Joan. Thanks for having me again. How are you? Well, I think I'm good. I've had COVID twice, um, but I've got <laughs> five shots under my belt. So the first time, it was eight days. The second time, it was four days. And, um, and, and interestingly, because I did get the bivalent, I'm not as nervous as I am about COVID as I am about some of these other respiratory things going around. It seems, you know, in, in my demographic, when you talk to your friends, sometimes you talk about (laughs) what illnesses you've either got or just recovered from. And there really seems to be some sort of, terrible respiratory thing. My next door neighbor uh, just got over it. He said he went to the doctor. He was tested. He was negative for COVID. Um, he was te- he tested negative for flu. But he said whatever respiratory thing he had, he said he was sicker with it than he had been when he had COVID. So what's going on? Sure. Uh, you know, that's a really familiar story. And it's uh, impacted a lot of our neighbors. It's impacted our families. And it's um, it's something that we're hearing quite a lot of. So what is this? Is this um, I know RSV has been getting the respiratory virus has been getting a lot of attention. But is RSV just kids? Because I, I keep reading about how kids and babies are getting very sick with it. it what yeah, what is that's, it? That's, that's maybe a comic. 
Yeah, that's a, a very good point. So maybe a little bit of a common misconception that RSV is just a disease in kids, but we see it quite a bit in adults. And as a matter of fact, in, in older adults, um, particularly those with other medical comorbidities, it can cause quite a, uh, quite a severe illness. And it's not like uh, COVID, for example, um, or measles, as another example, where we have uh, in a, a, a very effective vaccine. And, um, you know, for RSV, we don't really have a whole lot of treatments for it either. A lot of it is just supportive care. So even though I've been seeing all the pictures of these pediatric hospitals, RSV is something that grownups can get, too. Just to be clear. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we see it in in adult hospitals as well. We see it in some of our uh, more significantly ill patients with other medical comorbidities get very sick from RSV. So the fact that adults are getting sick with RSV and reporting it as just being really nasty is not something that's super surprising to us. Is there a test for it? There is. Oftentimes, uh, if someone gets hospitalized for a respiratory infection, uh, they will get uh, diagnostic testing that will look for things like RSV in in the respiratory specimen. Uh, So you will be able to differentiate some of these things like influenza, um, RSV, human metanumovirus, uh, and and, uh, COVID. Now, this medical knowledge of mine that I'm about to share with you may be woefully out of date. So Correct me if I'm wrong, but people used to say to me, oh, you've got a cold. Don't bother calling the doctor or going to see the doctor because there's nothing that can be done for a cold because it's a virus. You know, if you had a bacterial infection, you know, they could give you antibiotics. But if you have a viral infection, there's nothing anybody can do. Is that still true? I would say that there's not... I say what we say is is supportive care is best for a viral infection. What does supportive care mean? Uh, supportive care means getting some rest. It means um, staying home and, and relaxing, uh, drinking hot liquids, uh, really just kind of making sure that you're letting your body deal with, uh, with a, a natural invader. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't contact your doctor. So if you've been getting better, then all of a sudden you develop a severe fever uh, perhaps some of your secretions after initial time of improvement start to change color and you uh, have associated fever, that might be time to give your doctor a call. Uh, superimposed bacterial infections, which do respond to antibiotics, can occur in some of these viral infections. And certainly with some of these viral infections that can cause a pneumonia on its own, if you're having trouble breathing, you may want to reach out to your physician ASAP or uh, go to the emergency room. Is pneumonia always, is it always a bacterial infection? Is that the definition of pneumonia? Or can pneumonia be a virus too? You got it. We've seen pneumonia with bacteria. We see pneumonias with viruses. We see pneumonias with fungal infections. So uh, pneumonia is really just a a process involving the lungs that oftentimes associated with a a bacterial or uh, pathogen, but can always include viruses and and uh, fungal infections as well. So not just bacteria. And what is this new thing that I heard on CNN today, metanumovirus? Well, again, we're starting to talk a lot about uh, respiratory viruses, but human metanumovirus is not a uh, new virus at all. It's something that is is around uh, that pops up in the the fall and the winter, uh, very similar to some of these other respiratory viruses. They just tend to circulate around this time of year, and and that's uh, 
unfortunately, this is the the time of the season, and uh, this is the time of the year in which we're we're living right now. It's respiratory virus season, so we see a lot of these. Is it my imagination, or is it worse this fall? And if all of these respiratory illnesses are worse, why? It does seem to be a little worse, doesn't it? It just seems like I know in my family, uh, folks have been have, have been sick for for the last eight weeks, and it it just kind of feels like it's all coming together. And a lot of people suppose that because we've been in this pandemic environment where we have been masking, uh, we've been socially distanced from one another, that we've almost to some degree lost a, a, some protective immunity as a population from some of these other respiratory viruses. So where we're, our bodies, our immune systems are not as skilled at dealing with these vi- viruses, we're, we're getting a little bit sicker. And these are viruses that generally don't cause severe disease, but, but this year with everything kind of coming together, uh, people are visiting the, the hospital a lot more. Okay, well, what? We've got flu, we've got COVID, we've got RSV, and God knows what else. When do you know that it's time to call the doctor or when do you just tough it out till it's over? Well, I think it's important to remember that the majority of these infections are going to not cause severe illness. So our immune systems are very good at dealing with a lot of these viruses. And for the for majority of the population, we'll do just fine uh, staying at home with supportive care. Now, Um, If you are someone that has a chronic medical illness, so let's say that you've got COPD or you have asthma, uh, let's say you have advanced age, it may make sense to give your doctor a call if you're getting sick so that we can do appropriate diagnostic testing. We know that things like COVID, things like influenza can have associated treatments, and those treatments can be effective, particularly for COVID, things like Paxlovid. Uh, So... If you're feeling sick, particularly if you've got a febrile illness, I think, and you've got uh, medical comorbidities, it makes a lot of sense to give your doctor a call and schedule a test. Last time, last time I had COVID, my, um, my, what did my fever get up to? I think it, I think I hit 102 briefly because I was watching it and I kept thinking, you know, when it was like 99, I was like, ah, that's not bad. And then it was 100. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm in three digits, but it's okay. And then it was 101. I was like, well, you know, we're going to keep an eye on this. And it was 102. And I was like, it can't get any higher. I mean, surely it can't get any higher. Was I stupid? Should I have uh, at 102? Should I have called the doctor? Well, I don't think that there's a, a, a one prescription fits all uh, for this. Uh, but it does make sense to, to give your doctor a call, particularly if they're familiar with some of your other medical comorbidities, other things that are going on with you. You've got a, a very, I imagine, a very strong personal relationship with your doctor. and At least they know uh, what's going on with you so they can help guide you along the path to testing, uh, to treatment if needed. I think that's a really good idea. The first time I had COVID, even though I had symptoms, I did not, my test didn't turn positive till the fifth day. And the second time I had it, the first day I had those same symptoms, I took a COVID test and it was negative. And I was just, you know, and all I could think of was, I'm not doing this again. I'm not going to take a test every day for five days. I, these are the exact same symptoms I had before. I, you know, I've been through it once. I don't care if it has a name or not. Again, was that silly on my part? 
to just, you know, because I don't know if these tests aren't very sensitive or if my viruses like to hide from them, but I just didn't want to jump through the hoops. Why? So I could give it an official name. I knew how I felt. It was the exact same way I felt before. Is that enough of a diagnosis for Dr. Joan diagnosed herself? (laughs) You know, my mom called me with the same, uh, the same thing the other day. The, um, one of the things that we, we that is important to remember is that a lot of these respiratory viruses can prevent very similarly. So COVID can feel like influenza, it can feel like severe RSV. Uh, furthermore, some of the home tests that we have for COVID, and you mentioned this uh, in what you just, just said, but very early on in the disease, they can be uh, falsely negative. And so one of the advantages to perhaps going and seeing a provider is that they can, uh, if you're still having uh, fevers, for example, and your COVID test is negative, they can differentiate between COVID, influenza. They could even differentiate between RSV, depending on what kind of test they ordered. And sometimes this is PCR-based testing, so it tends to be a little bit more sensitive uh, early on in the infection. So uh, to your point, even though your COVID test is negative, your at-home COVID test is negative, it doesn't necessarily rule out COVID. Um, sometimes doing uh, a visit to a provider can actually help you get the answers you, you need by doing a more sensitive test. And sometimes those can look at other things like influenza and RSV as well. There seems to be an ever-lengthening list of symptoms associated with covid um, I mean, I was, you know, of course, everybody talks to their friends and what, you know, how did it manifest in you and you? Um, but it, it seems like almost it can almost anything can be associated with COVID. For instance, both times I had it, I had a lot of GI symptoms, which, you know, I don't hear people talking about that much. Um, how many different symptoms would you say right now are connected to COVID? Oh boy, uh, I've I've really kind of uh, I've I've heard quite a few. Um, certainly, headaches, uh, fevers, cough, uh, runny nose, sore throat. Um, you mentioned gastrointestinal manifestations, and, and that's certainly uh, been described as well. And I've seen patients with vomiting. I've seen patients with diarrhea, and sometimes you can get loose stool with a lot of uh, kind of profound inflammatory diseases. Um, not necessarily just COVID, but other infections. So the uh, the muscle aches, I didn't mention that, and body aches. Uh, so there are quite a number of different uh, uh, manifestations, and um, particularly during this time of year, you know, it may be the thing that you don't think is COVID. It actually, actually is. When COVID was first being um, parsed, was it when it was first in the news being discussed? I remember reading people saying, well, um, it's actually uh, COVID is an inflammation of the blood vessels. That's why people were having so many of these um, really bizarre symptoms um, with with COVID. Do we still think that? Well, I think that, that what we do know about COVID is that, and particularly in people that get severely ill, it is... Uh, and not just a, a manifestation of what the virus is doing, but how the immune system is responding. And what seems to be happening, particularly in people that are getting very ill, is that they're getting an unregulated or uh, unregulated response to, to the virus. And their immune system is really uh, overacting to, to the virus. And that's a lot of that, that inflammation that occurs as a result of infection, but drives a lot of uh, morbidity and mortality related to COVID. 
Is there any way to predict or or who's going to have severe COVID and who's going to have severe flu and who's going to have severe pneumonia and who's not? Is it just how many immune cells you have floating around? Well, a lot of it depends on on we know who's who tends to be at greater risk uh, for for poor outcomes for some of these viruses. And, and it, sometimes it changes from from virus to virus. But by and large, people that are, for example, uh, at the extremes of age tend to be a little bit more vulnerable, um, particularly older, older individuals, those with multiple medical comorbidities. And so we think about things like uh Diabetes. We think about things like liver disease, chronic kidney disease, hypertension, uh, heart disease, lung disease. Uh, those folks tend to be a little bit more vulnerable. You think about people with lung disease, their lungs uh, are not uh, the same as perhaps some others, and so they may be more susceptible to more severe outcomes from some of these respiratory viruses. And then we, we talk about uh, other immunocompromising conditions and things like um, stem cell transplants, solid organ transplants, HIV and uncontrolled HIV or AIDS. Um, these can all be risk factors for more severe outcomes. And, and it, if you have one of these other comorbidities, you might want to take extra care of yourself. We need to take a real quick break. I'm talking with Dr. Stockton Mayer of the University of Illinois Health Center. He's an infectious disease doctor. And when we come back, I want to know what vaccinations adults need. We know with kids, you know, every, you know, at six months they get this, at a year they get this. It's like a, there's a schedule. But once you're a grown up, it's like everybody just sort of leaves you alone. Oh, I'm sorry. You didn't keep up with that. Well, I didn't know I was supposed to. So we're going to find out when we come back if you are a grown up, particularly a senior grown up. What vaccinations should you have gotten fresh or within the last 20 years? We'll be right back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Dr. Stockton Mayer, who's an infectious disease physician at the University of Illinois Health Center. And I know that we know exactly what to do and when to do as far as vaccinations when it comes to our kids but I've never seen a, a vaccination schedule. Well, at 40, you need this. And at 45, you need this. Um, I mean, earlier today, Marge Halpern and I were mentioned the measles outbreak in Ohio. Now, I assume that the vast majority of those cases are kids who, for whatever reason, their parents didn't vaccinate them. But I remember many years ago, there was a resurgence of polio, and then experts kept saying, oh, by the way, you didn't think that polio vaccination was forever, did you? I mean, you should have gotten a booster. And it it, it begs the question, it seems like unless I go to the doctor and I'm sick, um, I don't know. I mean, now there's shingles and there's Prevnar and there's the COVID bivalent and and the flu vaccination. Do you have a schedule for adults, and is that available publicly somewhere? Sure. You can find vaccines. because So, number one, at your doctor's office, they should have a vaccine schedule for things you might need. And that's generally a part of every primary care visit uh, or any doctor's visit. Do you have the required vaccines? Oftentimes, these come as alerts in electronic medical records. And so this is something that, that we discuss very regularly with, uh, with folks when they come in for visits. Uh, things that, that you'll typically have a conversation with your provider on, independent of age, are things like 
the flu vaccine, uh, particularly for those, uh, again, that are older and that have multiple medical comorbidities, and uh, the COVID vaccine. So these are two vaccines that we, we talk about uh, every day now, uh, particularly with, um, uh, with our providers or with our, with our patients. Other vaccines that we oftentimes talk about, we, we talk about tetanus boosters. So we typically give those every 10 years. For some of our older folks, we talk about uh, the Zoster vaccine, as you mentioned. Um, so these are just some examples. Uh, you can talk to your provider about some of the vaccines that are required for your age group, and you can find them online. The CDC has great immunization schedules, um, and they're readily accessible to the public. You mentioned tetanus. When a child gets that, it's in combination with, I think, diphtheria and a couple other things. If I get a booster on that as an adult, do I get all that other goodness, too? Or just do they just say, oh, you're old, sorry, you just get tetanus? You can. No, they'll oftentimes give you that Tdap booster every 10 years. Tdap, that's what it's called, yes. Like, do I need a measles booster? Do I mean, do I need a polio booster? <laughs> What's really nice about measles is that um, measles is, is um, fairly durable in its immune response. So uh, someone that has had an infection with measles um, is generally protected for a lifetime. Individuals that have had um, individuals that have had measles uh, vaccine are also fairly well protected, particularly if they've had two doses. Um, when I was a child, I had measles, but there were. It seemed to me that my mom told me that there were two kinds of measles. There was the three-day measles and the nine-day measles. Um, is there only one measles now? Uh, have we combined those two? Are there still two kinds of measles? And if I had one, am well, I protected some, against the other? Yes, measles Measles largely is measles. And so if you've had measles, you're protected. Uh, sometimes, uh, again, these, uh, these, vaccine, these uh, viruses will manifest differently, differently in one person to the other. Some people get sicker for longer from these uh, viruses than others. And so I think it's important to note the variability and how they present in, in everybody. So what about, so those of us who are a certain age, who had mumps, who had chicken pox, we're protected against those forever. Is that right? It entirely depends on the virus. So mm -hmm. if you'll look, for example, at COVID, uh, COVID is a great example of a virus where we don't necessarily get sustained immunity. There's a lot of uh, um, reinfection that occurs because immunity wanes, and then we get new variants uh, that can escape the immune response. So COVID is a great example of something you can get multiple times uh, that we're very familiar with. Measles on the other spectrum is something you get sick with once. You're less likely. Certainly it's possible to get sick with measles again, but it's much less likely than with something like COVID. So every virus tends to be a little bit different in in the durability of the immune response in the host and whether or not you can get sick again from it. Okay, so should you make an appointment when you sit down with your doctor? I don't know about you. I mean, I think the days of a family being with one doctor forever are long gone. I mean, I between doctors who've retired early and retired late and, and left medicine, I've got to be on easily as an adult, my fifth family doctor. Um, so, you know, every time you have those um, discussions, do you revisit? By the way, doctor, you know, um, 
take a look at my vaccination history. Am I short on anything? Is that something yeah, that, that you that should expect to say? I don't know if you necessarily need to expect to say that, but it's something to be to, to keep in mind when you're visiting the doctor's office. I will say that, yes, a lot of times we uh, transition providers. Providers will retire or they'll change location or they'll change offices. If you're staying at that same office, there should be some continuity in the medical records. And a lot of the medical records that, that we have these days are often we can share some data between institutions depending on, on which medical record that institution is using. So to a degree, we can, we can have that same continuity and record keeping. Uh, even if our provider changes. Now, the provider should be talking with you about your vaccine history, what vaccines you've had uh, during that visit. But if they don't, it's okay to remind them. Doc, am I up, do I need any vaccines or are there any vaccines that I'm, I'm due for? That is entirely, um, ent- you, should be, you should feel entirely comfortable doing that. If you don't remember what vaccines you've had and you're meeting with a new doctor, you know, because these days, a lot of times people don't even get their vaccinations from their doctors. Oh, they'll go to CVS or they'll go to Walgreens or whatever. If you don't know what you've had and don't know where your records are, should you get some vaccines um, just to be on the safe side? And if you if let's say you got the vaccine for, I mean, I don't know, pneumonia, and you can't remember, so you get it again, Does do you put yourself at risk? Well, what's really kind of neat now about some of our, our record keeping is that, that, for example, here in the state of Illinois, we can, once we, we get back, vaccinated, a lot of that, that information gets placed into the state registry. And so even if we go to a provider, we don't necessarily have our records, providers should be able to check within that registry to see uh, what vaccines you've had. And that's, that's really kind of nice because, like I mentioned, it, it allows for, for a degree of continuity. Uh, if, for example, you move far away or out of state and you can't bring your, uh, your vaccine or you can't bring your records with you, you don't have your records, it's probably okay to get an additional dose of the vaccine. It probably probably won't hurt you, um, but again, it's it's important to kind of keep track of what you're uh, what you're actually getting vaccinated against, so that you remember. I have one of those weird little puckered scars on my arm. Was that did I get vaccinated for smallpox? And um, so like if there's like a biological warfare, I'll be one of the few who survives. <laughs> Well, yeah, you, you you may have been vac- uh, vaccinated against smallpox. A lot of older adults uh, were vaccinated against smallpox using that uh, the early small uh, smallpox vaccine. Uh, it's entirely possible. <laughs> I'm going to outlive all of you. Huh? Um, Dr. Mayer, thank you so much. It is always a pleasure to talk with you. You always give us such good information. Thanks for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. We are going to take a break for news, and we're going to get back to politics and world affairs after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. We haven't talked uh, for a day or two about what is going on in Ukraine. I told you at the beginning of the show today that the G7 got together, you know, the the big, uh, important countries of the world. And while Ukraine is not a member of the G7, they invited 
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to join them. Uh, and the G7, I don't know if this is important. I don't know if this was to just send a message to the world or to Vladimir Putin, but the G7 came out as a group and said that they are more united than ever in their support for Ukraine, that they have an unwavering commitment to our shared values. And they said that their support for Ukraine and solidarity with Ukraine was going to continue, and they actually called Russia out. They described it as Russia's war of aggression, accused Russia of inhumane and brutal attacks. Uh, Russia, of course, has been targeting infrastructure, particularly energy and water infrastructure. They have been targeting hospitals. They have been targeting apartment buildings. You know, this is, as we have talked before, this is how Vladimir Putin wages war. He doesn't follow any of the conventions or any of the any of the rules that have been put in place to make sure that war is a military conflict and doesn't take a huge toll on the civilian population. President Zelensky said recently that one of the cities in Ukraine has essentially been reduced to rubble. The entire city. We've uh, talked about how the this is not likely to wrap up this conflict in the winter. That uh, Vladimir Putin one proposed strategy that he is following is that if he can make, if he can, the reason he's going after the energy infrastructure is he wants people not to have clean water and he wants people not to have light and he wants people not to have heat and he wants to basically break their spirit. And he is also trying to make sure with the oil and gas shipments and the pricing that um, countries like Germany are paying for that. He wants to make sure that Ukraine's supporters are suffering this winter, too. Um, clearly, this war, which was uh, he was told was going to be over in, what was it, a week or two, that Ukraine would just fall into line. I mean, you know, nobody really opposed him when he took over Crimea, right? It was going to be the same exact thing. Everything was going to fold. And, you know, on paper, he had reason to think that. NATO had been at odds. People were talking about whether or not NATO would ever be um, a unified force again. But Vladimir Putin made it happen. The countries of NATO came together in a way that certainly not a lot of people predicted they would. One of the people we talk to on a regular basis um, to get some expertise on this issue is Professor Joel Ostro. He's a professor of political science. He's an expert on Russia. He studied in Russia. He also has uh, done work researching how authoritarianism arises. He is at Benedictine University, and he joins us now to talk about what is going on at this moment in time. Professor Ostro, thank you so much for being here. Great to be with you again, Joan, as always. Thanks for having me. Um, I just um, I, I I gave like a little actually, bit of a, what do you see as the, the highlights right now of this conflict? 
Well, you know, I'd, I'd like to, uh, to follow up on, on the last bit of what you said there, uh, referring to the 2013-2014 annexation of Crimea and parts of Donbass. Um, some of us were highly critical of what were known as the Minsk Accords, um, largely brokered by Angela Merkel, then the Chancellor of Germany, but certainly the Obama administration was very much a part of those negotiations that did uh, essentially appease Russia's aggression. It's no, I'm not real familiar with Donbass. those. Could you could you tell me more about the Minsk Accords? Yeah, so uh, it essentially uh, was uh, Europe's again, primarily Germany's. Uh, because of its um, addiction to Russia's oil and gas, uh, acknowledging Russia's annexation, of, or, or at least it didn't acknowledge it. It basically ignored Russia's annexation of Crimea and uh, part of Donbass. Uh, Russia promised uh, not to engage in further aggression against Ukraine, uh, and um, it included the agreement for the completion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Um, and it uh, was condemned by many experts, myself included at the time, because it essentially told Putin, OK, you win. Uh, and not only that, there were there were no penalties against uh, Russia's actions, which signaled to Putin really weakness and division in the West that he could do what he wanted. Uh, and uh, and that's what is done. Um, this seemed inevitable, some sort of additional action against Ukraine uh, at a time when Putin decided it was in his interest to do so. Now, certainly he has miscalculated with this invasion, uh, but that doesn't negate the fact that uh, that that our appeasement of that earlier aggression was a, an enormous mistake. Um, but, you know, it's kind of water under the bridge. It's eight years ago. Um, and uh, at least everyone remains unified in supporting Ukraine and opposing Russia now. Um, and the people at the time, most important, um, um, Angel, Angela Merkel at all, did they think that that the pipeline was in jeopardy if they didn't agree to this? Did they just not have the stomach to really get all that upset about Crimea? Um, you know, did they think, oh, well, just like that, you know, feeding the crocodile will give him this and then he'll be happy and leave everybody else alone? Probably the latter. It's, it was mind-boggling to me at the time, Joan, uh, and, um, and I condemned it on air uh, at the time as well. Um, it was a mistake then. It's a mistake now. Uh, and and the Ukraine is paying an incalculable price for it. Uh, and the costs to the West are, are greater now than they would have been otherwise. Um, but but again, uh, states are prone to making mistakes. And, and uh, it, it is encouraging to know that in some sense, we've learned from them, because let's not forget the current president was vice president then and a primary foreign policy advisor to President Obama. I think history will, I hope, signal that President Biden was opposed to those Minsk Accords, but I don't know that for a fact. Uh, but it does seem by his behavior before and after that uh, that, that appeasement was not something that he uh, 
he was likely to have been on board with. Has appeasement, you're, you're the historian here, has appeasement ever worked? I mean, it certainly didn't work with Hitler in World War II. No, it, I don't know of any major events in history where it has worked, um, it, at least when it's appeasing a dictator, because that just tells a dictator that he or she can do whatever, whatever they want mm-hmm. and get away with it. That's the message. Um, and yet governments yeah. sometimes still, short still term do it. Long term. It's short term thinking versus long term. Yeah. Because that's um, just governments. It's human nature in a large sense, right? Yeah, I guess so. Well, look, I guess look so. at the Republican Party today. <laughs> exactly. They wouldn't take the short-term pain, and now they've got the long-term pain. It's kind of the flip of that. Um, Professor Ostro yeah, and I need to take a quick thing. We need to take a quick break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Professor Joel Ostros, a political science professor at Benedictine University and an expert on Russia. We were just talking about appeasement, how when uh, the Western powers decided that they wouldn't go after Vladimir Putin for claiming Crimea as his own, that that set in motion a mindset that probably got us where we are today. There was an article in the Washington Post, I think it was yesterday, that said uh, if you look to what happened in Crimea, it shows you that it's still in conflict. Vladimir Zelensky still says that he wants to see the Ukrainian flag flown over Crimea. Vladimir Putin, forget about Ukraine. I mean, he thinks Crimea is definitely his now. And that they were saying that this is just one way that the attitude of these two people shows us that the idea that we are near to some kind of negotiated peace is is not the case that it's a that a negotiated peace in fact this person was writing seemed like to them a slim possibility what are your thoughts about all that i don't see a negotiated peace in the near future that's for sure uh zelensky uh, has made clear from the beginning that ukraine's objective is is to uh liberate all of ukraine proper from russian occupation now uh, crimea Historically, and, and it's probably not worth going into it, is is a certain was absolutely part of Russia at one point. Um, but I, I am one who uh, has pretty consistently argued that you, know, you go back in time, you can uncover previous previous grievance versus previous grievance never ending. And that's true with all intractable conflicts, and this has all the writings of an intractable conflict. Um, Crimea has been part of Ukraine, at least since the Second World War, and uh, uh, Zelensky's objective is to uh, bring it back into uh, Ukraine as part of its territory. And and the recent attacks on Melitopol um, over recent days is meant to... Um, to reclaim, uh, to evict Russia from uh, a key point that would uh, basically destabilize all of Russia's supply access to Crimea. Kherson was a, a, a major gain for Ukraine. Uh, Melitopol on top of it would really make it difficult for Russia to uh, supply Crimea from 
from the other territory it occupies in, in the eastern part of, of Ukraine. So that's why these attacks are happening there now uh, in Melitopol. Um, it's another one of those cities that's basically been razed to the ground. Uh, certainly by the end of this will have been totally destroyed. Um, all signs point to that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's hard to argue with, with Ukraine's position uh, on declaring its territory to be its territory. And and it certainly was not happy about those Minsk Accords. That was between uh, Europe, the U.S., and Russia. Ukraine didn't have so much of a voice in that. Um, and and one can understand it not it not wanting to accept the reality of, of Ukraine being part of of Crimea being part of Russia. So yeah, I don't see a negotiated settlement anytime soon. You know, Vladimir Putin is raising certain cities to the ground. Yeah. He is attacking yeah. the energy infrastructure. Even if he wins what it, you know? What was the goal? Just to basically have that territory? Or was the goal yeah. that we're you know we're now going to be the wheat producer to the world? I mean, was it just a land grab? And he doesn't care if the land is rubble; he still wants it. And it's a little more than a land grab. It's also um, uh, there are elements of Russian nationalism tied in uh, to it. Um, uh, Putin does not see. He basically sees the Ukrainians as as a subset of Russia, uh, and um, and so does not see a, a legitimate distinction between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, and this is this is nothing new in terms of his mindset. Uh, certainly not uh, new since his rise to power in the very late 1990s. Um, it has been part of his goal to sort of. Uh, reconstitute Greater Russia uh, as part of his you know, the follow-on to his earlier centralization of power in the Kremlin. Um, that is why Belarus it doesn't really function as an independent state, um, and Ukraine has always been part of that uh, mission of his. Um, and uh, um, I guess as part of that, the, the, the territory is more important to the, than the people, and, and if it requires wiping out uh, many or most Ukrainians, then peace line seems to be fine with that. Um, and, you know, I, I hope that there isn't um, a widespread public fatigue with hearing the term war crime, but everything about this war uh, is a war crime. Um, but certainly Russia's conduct of it on a daily basis, it's, it's every, every aspect of their strategic and tactical action in Ukraine uh, is violation of uh, the laws of war under the Geneva Conventions established, you know, many, many decades ago. Uh, And, uh, yeah, and and there's just no sign of it. Not only is there no sign of that uh, subsiding, there's every sign that it's going to continue to escalate. some of Russia's tactics over the last week have been um, particularly heinous. Uh, they are using uh, 1970s-era cruise missiles that used to carry nuclear warheads on them. Ironically enough, missiles that were manufactured in factories in Ukraine um, as dummies 
So they've removed warheads from them, and they're just dummy missiles. They lost those. Ukraine then turns its air defense systems against those uh, dummy missiles, and then Russia is firing uh, more modern weapons at the electrical grid so that the air defenses um, are already sort of blinded by those those uh, dummies that they're sending. Uh, and that so far has had uh, success, as Russians would define it. Um, Ukraine has had less of, uh, success in, in protecting its those targets from those attacks. They're shooting down those older missiles, but the newer ones that are getting through. I read somebody was suggesting that we may have to do at some point an airlift uh, when um, when we did an airlift in Berlin, you know, when they were trying to squeeze out back when there was a wall separating East Berlin from West Berlin. Yeah. And and we sent over planes and they dropped in food and suppl- medical supplies. And somebody was saying that Ukraine, it might get to be the same situation in Ukraine where we have to do something like that. Do you think it could be that bad? And do you think the West would do that? The first time I've heard this, do you remember uh, who that source was? I'm curious. Oh, God, now you're going to make me try to use my memory here. Um, was it, I, I it think it, was a, it, like it wasn't a reporter, like reporting something that they'd heard on a White House. It was a political commentator saying, you know, yeah. we may need to um, bring back the, uh, the German airlift to help these people. It was just a, a political speculator. Yeah, not, not, not somebody with a military background, because nobody with a military background would say that, because it sounds patently idiotic. Uh, this is an active war zone. Now, while the Soviets were making moves to seal off Berlin at the time of the airlift, there wasn't active fighting going on. They weren't shooting down planes or, 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 or launching rockets or bombing buildings or electrical grids. Uh, it was a captive population. It was a seize, menta- seize mentality, and we were dropping food to the people who were being besieged. Uh, during the, the siege of Berlin. There's an active war zone. So we first we'd have to create a no-fly zone, which would mean shooting down Russian planes. Uh, no, I don't see uh, uh, that kind of action. Uh, but aid, and even the, today's G7 meetings, my understanding is there was a pledge of, of uh, a massive increase in our aid to Ukraine over the winter, and that's going to require... Um, uh, it'll happen mostly by land and rail, I would assume, not, not, not by air. Well, the G7 official statement, point number six, said we will continue to coordinate efforts to meet Ukraine's urgent requirements for military and defense equipment with an immediate focus on providing Ukraine with air defense systems and capabilities. That was point number six from the uh, how many points statement that the G7 released on uh, on Ukraine and what they will. Yeah, yeah. Joe, that's in recognition of the recent tactics that Russia's engaged by sort of um, uh, baffling Ukraine's current air defense capability with those um, old uh, sort of uh, decoy missiles. So. Yes, there's going to have to be a, a, a very large increase in, in uh, surface-to-air uh, missile capability, anti-missile defense systems, uh, and 
those were already pledged. I think it's, it's simply um, escalating, increasing the time frame, uh, accelerating the time frame, I'm sorry, uh, for the delivery of those. That, that's what I would imagine that means. Yeah. We that are talking... Yeah, I'm talking with yeah. Professor Joel Ostro. We are talking about the situation with Russia and Ukraine. We are going to be taking a break, and we are going to be back with more. Um, I also want you to know that if you have any questions or comments, 773-763-9278-773-763-9278. We've already gotten some questions uh We've already gotten some questions texted in, but if you would like to uh, call in and make a comment or have a question for Professor Ostro, 773-763-9278. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Hi, I'm joined by Professor Joel Ostro, and we are talking about the situation in Russia and Ukraine and uh, Joel, um, I wanted to ask you, one of our listeners texted in a, a comment that ties in with what I wanted to talk to you about, and that is the new Congress taking shape. Obviously, Democrats still have control of the Senate. We still have control of the White House. But uh, Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans will be in charge in the House of Representatives. And They've they've kind of been all over the map. You know, they've said, oh, we, you know, where there's not going to be any more support for Ukraine under us. And then they've said a bunch of other things. One of our listeners texted in that they had heard that uh, there was some Republican right wing think tank that um, was offering the party a new talking point on Ukraine. And that should be if uh, Republicans agree to support Ukraine, that um would ha- only be um, only be available if Democrats agreed to cuts in entitlement programs. Like you know, we'll cu- if you agree to cut Social Security, well, we'll take that money and we'll send it to Ukraine. That that could potentially be a Republican talking point. What do you think about the new Congress, and what does it mean for our support for Ukraine? <laughs> Sorry to laugh at the question. Um, well, first of all, thankfully, uh, the Republican Party, which uh, uh, my thoughts on, on that entity are well known now, um, has the slimmest of majorities in the House. Um, the McCarthy, Jordan, Green, and Boebert wing of the party have been uh, Russia, Putin capitulators, Russia sympathizers quite vocally for uh, many years now. Uh, and they have strongly signaled uh, the continuation of that uh, policy of capitulation and appeasement to, to Vladimir Putin. Fortunately, though, uh, the chair of, and I can't remember, he's going to be the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee uh, or the Defense Committee, uh, Michael McCall, uh, is taking a more, more traditional Republican approach uh, and uh, the centrist and mainstream America approach of promising continued support for Ukraine uh, and opposition to Putin and Russia and authoritarianism. Now, how far that will, that, that clash will be interesting to watch in the House. Again, it's the House is, it's a very slim Republican majority and, and there have to be more than half a dozen who would be willing to split uh, with the extremist, uh, majority of the Republican Party. Um, 
And in any case, uh, there's no sign at all that the Senate would go along or, or that the White House would abide uh, by any such effort. So uh, that, that's pretty much smoke. I think uh, the, the outcome of these elections are, are pretty clear. Uh, and I think America's support for Ukraine uh, and opposition to Putinism will, uh, will remain strong. There will just be more noise uh, from the anti-democracy uh, majority of the Republican Party. You touched on something that I think is going to make all the difference in the world, and that's the fact that the Republicans have such a slim majority. And there seems to be dissension in the ranks. I mean, the radicals want to go in one direction and the moderate Republicans have finally apparently found their voice. And they've said, you know, we are not going to be dragged off uh, to the far right. And I've seen I would have never given this any credence. But lately I've seen a few people starting to speculate that Kevin McCarthy might not be able to be the next speaker because despite the fact that he is trying to negotiate and make promises, um, you know, he's got two opposing factions. And I think that's going to make any kind of statement or investigations or or um, legislation that they produce. I, I think I think they're going to have a hard time just getting all of the Republicans in the same room, let alone on the same page. I believe you're right about that. He's going to be speaker and and make no mistake. The overwhelming majority of the Republican caucus and the House of Representatives is extremist. Um, Overwhelming majority. But all there needs to be are a dozen or two reasonable Republicans in the House uh, and and there are still at least uh, that many, uh, but not much more than that. Uh, hmm. Of the 220 or so members, uh, at least 170 are are extremists, uh, and they vote consistently that way. They speak consistently that way, uh, and that's not going to change. Uh, and 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 I'd be willing to bet a decent sum of money that McCarthy will be speaker, uh, but. When it comes to Ukraine, though, I, 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 th- I don't think that they – I think they, a different outcome in the election would have been much more worrisome. I think, uh, I think uh, that America's support for Ukraine will, will remain uh, largely unaffected, it, but the rhetoric might there'll – be, there'll be a lot of loud voices uh, who have gavels and committees um, who are saying outrageous things, uh, and that's, that's the unfortunate reality that we're going to face for the next couple of years. Um, another one of our listeners, and uh, again, I don't know this person's point of view, but they said, please ask the professor about the role of NATO expansion triggering this war. Ukraine was not on a path to joining NATO, number one. Uh, Ukraine was nowhere near on a path to joining the European Union. Its economy was in no shape to do so, number two. The Minsk Accords largely uh, precluded either of those things from happening. That's number three. Uh, That's all disinformation coming from the Kremlin uh, that 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 was the case. Uh, This was an unprovoked attack by Russia on uh, a neighboring state that posed no threat to it. Uh, It was not taking any action 
suggesting threat to uh, something I wanted to address from your uh, wonderful opening comments, Joan, um, and and I hope that you'll continue to stress those points um, and uh, to combat those uh, unwitting opponents of that voice. Um, Russia is the aggressor here. Uh, all of Russia's actions are aimed at the civilian population of Ukraine. Uh, from, as you accurately noted earlier, uh, the deliberate targeting of hospitals, of schools, of shopping centers and apartment buildings, which is now pivoted to their deliberate targeting of electricity, energy, and water supplies to the Ukrainian population. Uh, those are all uh, certainly war crimes. They fall under the context of uh, genocide and attempt to destroy a people in whole or in part as such. Um, they are illegal. Russia is the aggressor. Ukraine exclusively targets uh, Russia's Russian military installations and strategic targets like bridges. Uh, but mostly they're attacking fuel depots or uh, warships or uh, military bases or, or bases of their uh, mercenary group, uh, the uh, Wagner group. Um, so they are exclusively targeting legitimate military strategic targets. Uh, nothing that Russia does is legitimately called retaliation. Russia is the aggressor state. Nothing Russia does can legitimately be called retaliation. Ukraine is defending itself uh, and has every right to defend itself, even from uh, if, the, if their responses... Uh, are on targets that are in Russian territory. Russia has made itself a legitimate target, and as long as Ukraine is not targeting apartment buildings or schools or shopping malls or hospitals or elder care facilities, uh, as long as they are limiting their targeting to uh, military targets, um, uh, their actions are legitimate and Russia's are illegitimate. And, and the reporting on that... Um, Ukraine gets to strike back, and, from, and what Russia does afterwards is a continuation of its illegal aggression, not retaliation. And I just it drives me nuts when the reporting uh, characterizes it otherwise. I agree. Well said. Um, we need to take a break. Professor Joel Ostro and I are talking about the situation in Ukraine. We are going to be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Joel Ostro is a professor at Benedictine University. He is a political science professor, and he has an expertise in Russia, and he has uh, also studied uh, how authoritarian governments arise. We have been talking about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, uh, is it going to take Western Europe saying, you know, thanks, Vlad, we're not buying your oil and gas anymore. I can't think of what other pressure can be brought to bear on Vladimir Putin to try to end this conflict. Um, is that, what do you see? Well, and, uh, as, as I was saying at the outset uh, of, of Russia's invasion, uh, Europe, there are alternate sources of oil and gas, um, uh, and Europe has uh, been as successful as I thought they would be in finding alternate 
sources. Um, and we even see of late uh, that Turkey is foiling now uh, Russian deliveries of gas, um, stalling uh, oil tankers at sea, not letting them dock. This is a new development. I'm not sure how it came about because Turkey was a bit of a problem. Hungary was a bit of a problem in this. Uh, but uh, and, and the recent agreement to cap the price that they will pay for Russian oil is also a positive development. Um, we need to hope that these continue. Um, but, uh, you know, every, every mechanism for isolating Russia's economy and, and really its finances uh, make a big difference. The Russian economy has been hit not as hard as we hope, but it, it's, it's coming uh, because these sanctions are sustained and, and their ability to continue to produce things that they need to produce is, is running out and they're turning to more and more to countries like Iran uh, for help and Iran's got its own problems now. Uh, so um, I do think that more could be done in terms of seizures of assets, uh, but at this stage it does not seem like the so-called oligarchs have, have really any uh, ability to change anything on the ground in, uh, in Russia politically. Um, that's going to be a, a bottom-up process, and there are really few and far between of any signs of that happening. Uh, so, that, and that's what leads to uh, mine and other analysts saying that this is this is going to be protracted. There's not an end in sight, and it's going to be up to Putin to bring it to an end. Um, but I but, thought uh, but uh, I Erdogan w- and Putin were like best buds. I mean, didn't yeah. we see that picture not all that long ago of him and Putin and um, um, and uh, I forget who from Iran and and yeah. They try to play a middle ground, uh, but Turkey is still a NATO member, let's not forget, and, and is very much integrated uh, with Europe. Uh, and uh, so, um, you know, Turkey is at the crossroads of Europe and Asia and always has been and always will be. Um, and uh, while it's not necessarily the most palatable broker at some point, um, Turkey is trying to preserve its ability to, to play that role, whether it will or not. Time will tell. Uh, but um, um, Turkey has not been nearly as cozy with Russia during this as, as, uh, as certainly as I had feared. Uh, so that's a good thing. Uh, we talked about a lot of these pressures, you know, the, the sanctions, um, Europe looking yeah. for different sources of oil and gas. We've also talked about previously the unpopularity of the military recruitment that's going on in yeah. inside of Russia. Uh, the Washington Post had an article about how even some of the soldiers who were going home were having a mental trauma and there was no treatment yeah. for them. I mean, yeah. I, I, this seems to be going wrong for Vladimir Putin on just about every front. I just... I, well, I keep sure. every time I look and, at this, I keep thinking it's bound. It's like a house of cards that's bound to collapse at some point. And and his annual December so-called press conference, uh, where he takes questions from the planted questions from the public, but usually it goes on for three or four hours. Uh, he's canceled that uh, in large part because he doesn't want those uncomfortable questions, and, and he knows that's all he'd get either from family members of of killed and wounded soldiers um, or from disaffected uh, opponents of his regime or of this war. Uh, 
so yeah, it's having effect. It's having an effect that's noticeable uh, to the Russian population. Um, so, um, and then all we can do is hope that that those continue and 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 continue to to, to expand. When you say you see a protracted war, are you talking months yeah. or are you talking years or are you talking that you don't necessarily see any end in sight? I don't see an end point until there's an end point to Putin's grasp on you know, control in the Kremlin. Uh, and then, depending on the circumstances uh, in which that would change, uh, things could get dramatically worse if, if someone uh, with even lesser strength than him were to, uh, to gain the levers of power. Uh, what do you mean me by someone that. with lesser strength? Lesser, less restraint. Oh, less restraint. Uh, I thought you said less strength. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, but I, I will say this. Um, a report came out that as part of the uh, process that led to um, the release of Brittany Griner and the continued incarceration of Paul Whelan, uh, President Biden dispatched, uh, I believe it was the CIA director, uh, to meet with uh, the head of the FSB, the, the successor to the KGB in Russia. Uh, and um, around the time of those talks when they must, would have been held uh, is when Ukraine used long-range drones that apparently they built and outfitted uh, to hit a Russian, an, an airfield um, deep in Russian territory. That airfield is a, a, a home to uh, long-range uh, bombers that carry nuclear weapons, and the targeting by the Ukrainians and the intelligence that they had, uh, apparently from their own assets on the ground, Ukrainian intelligence, was just masterful and underreported. Uh, they destroyed buildings that contained no nuclear materials. They destroyed a couple of bomber planes and a fighter plane, I believe, that contained no nuclear materials on them, while leaving unscathed all of the nuclear material that indeed is at that base. And that signal was powerful. Uh, since that time, you've heard Putin make quite uh, reassuring statements that Russia's position on nuclear weapons has not changed, that it has not changed its approach to or understanding of what nuclear weapons are. Moreover, we've heard nothing more about the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine. Um, I do not see these things as an accident. Number one, uh, Ukraine has showed that it has the ability to cause uh, um, proportional damage in Russia if Russia were to do something like that in Ukraine. That's number one. Uh, and so I think that certainly gave Putin pause. And number two, I have to believe that those talks between the CIA director and the FSB director were not limited to a uh, and uh, that um, some clarification and, and return to normal, at least on the subject of nuclear stuff, if you will, um, has been at least temporarily restored or eased. Uh, uh, we all need to hope that that is, A, true, and B, continues and continues in that direction. I think we all like to hope that, you know, 
there's stuff going on behind the scenes. We've all seen the spy shows and we've watched the TV shows, you know, that our government is working behind the scenes to keep everything safe and to keep us from the brink of nuclear war. And there are brave men and women out there, you know, doing covert ops um, trying to move this whole situation along. I I don't know if there's as much of that going on in real life as I hope there is, but I have to believe that, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on that doesn't make it into the public. Would you say that's correct? There's a lot of talk and other actions going on that we will perhaps not know about for years? What you're saying is we have a competent administration in, in the White House again. <laughs> that's what you've just said. Right, because that's what a competent, responsible uh, executive in this country does. Uh, and in President Biden, uh, whatever else you may say about him, he has long, long experience in foreign policy, uh, both in his time in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and as vice president. Um, and uh, we've got the right president at the right time, at least as far as uh, this crisis goes. Um, so... And not just having the right president means having the right people around him. Um, Much of this has been done in secret, but the combination of public statements, particularly prior to the invasion, the warnings, the preparing the world for what was coming, to then the 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 behind-the-scenes work in in assembling and maintaining and strengthening the coalition, supporting Ukraine and opposing Russia, those are two distinct things. They're two sides of the same coin, but they are different sides. Um, uh, it's ongoing uh, is, and it has been just spectacular uh, all around. So, um, Do you think Antony Blinken was a good choice? Do you think he's, you know, because he's kind of low-key. Once in a while he'll make a, a statement, but um, I, have a, I have a feeling that there's a lot of work he's doing behind the scenes. Is he a good choice in that job? When when he was named, and, and boy, the, the name of the National Security Advisor is escaping me. I was not uh, enthralled with either pick. I didn't think that either of those were inspired choices. And um, I'm here to tell you that I was spectacularly wrong on both counts. Excellent. I mean, if you're going to be wrong yeah. about something, that's the way we want you to be wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah. Joel, yeah. <laughs> thank you, Joel. Thank you so much for uh, sharing all of your insight and information with us uh, on this very important issue. Um, our, our interviews will be protracted just like the war, so thank you for <laughs> continuing to come back. That was good. I really appreciate I always enjoy talking with you, John. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. That is uh, going to do it for me today. Uh, Patty Vasquez is going to be taking over right after news at the top of the hour. I am going to be back here, of course, in this chair, God willing, 2 o'clock tomorrow. Um, You know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world of finance. We're going to talk to Terry Savage. It's always fun when she joins us on the radio. She is definitely, uh, and she's knowledgeable, and she's she's fun. And I I think that's a good combination. We will uh, do that tomorrow and a lot more. I will see you then. Until that time, please uh, have a great evening. Stay safe. Good night.